Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. My name is Jonathan Ellsworth. I'm the founder of Blister, and you can check us out online at blisterreview.com, where we publish in-depth and totally honest reviews of outdoor sports equipment, offer some great weekly gear giveaways, you should definitely check out this week's giveaway and win yourself some skis, and do some other pretty cool things too. Last week on the podcast, we talked to Jed Geiser, the head ski designer for Line Skis and a senior designer for K2 Skis. This week, we're going to run the second part of our conversation with Jed, where we talk about working with Eric Pollard, Tom Wallace, and Jason Leventhal, manufacturing skis in China, e-bikes, books, movies, and more. But before we get to that conversation, we want to mention that this episode of the Blister Podcast is presented by Alaska Airlines. Alaska Airlines is offering seasonal flights between Seattle and Steamboat Springs, as well as flights to Sun Valley from Seattle and LAX. And there are also now seasonal flights from LAX to Crested Butte. And one more thing, when you fly Alaska Airlines to places like Alieska Resort, Big Sky, or Crested Butte, just present your boarding pass and you get to ski for free. Go to alaskaair.com forward slash ski to check out the specific terms and conditions. Now let's get to our conversation with Jed. So, Eric Pollard. Yeah. He, uh, he, he's had a, He's had a few of his own models, uh, at, several at, at Line Skis. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to me. We've just you know hearing in this in this uh, conversation and about your own background growing mm -hmm. up racing D one. What the hell are you doing? You know, working with Eric Pollard huh. um, on on ski design. And um, I mean, I know from previous conversations with you. You know, yeah. Eric takes this stuff really seriously and has his own ideas for sure. And so I think that's just an interesting thing that, that Pollard is working with a former racer. Yeah. Well, Pollard is a former racer as well. Um, the way he skis and the way I ski is, is very, very different. And I think, you know, when you're talking about Eric, um, and I, I know I've, I've talked to you about this a lot, um, I, I at least really sort of he's he's not your average athlete and working with Eric is one of the greatest parts of my job hmm. um, and I think anybody in the ski industry talks I don't think anybody in the ski industry talks about Eric with a great deal of reverence because he is so so uncommon I would go so far as to say from a product development standpoint he is the best athlete that any company is working with um, there are obviously a lot of athletes I don't know about, so that's not an informed decision. But, um, I mean, working, there are athletes I work with that can be a little difficult in that they're not entirely sure what they want or what they want is what they already have. They're, they're not very good at, at trying to figure out what's next. Whereas Eric, I mean, he spends so much time sketching stuff out in his notebook and taking notes on skis and... I mean, before we develop anything, we've got a, a new ski coming out in, in a few months that we've been working on really for two years and been talking about for four. Um, 
but like when Eric comes to me with an idea, it's it's a fully baked idea. And yeah, there are a lot of times like this this SKU that, that people will see at SIA is a great example where he came to me with sketches and sent me like a scanned sketch that he had in a cardboard cutout. And I, I basically started putting some things together and say, hey, you know, this isn't going to work. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, before we made the first versions of prototypes, tweak some things with his buy-off. But he's, he's so incredibly passionate about what he does. I mean, he cares. I got a three-page email from him the other day talking about some changes he wanted to see and, and really talking about how there's a specific feel for the skis that he develops. And, and um, I mean, we're talking about small tweaks, and I don't think anybody but Eric would, would notice those tweaks. Um, but he's so good at saying, this is what I want, this is why I want it, this is how I think we should solve this problem. And he's also really receptive to, say, to me saying, that might not work the way you think it's going to, here are some other ideas. Um, and as far as, you know, backgrounds and, and skiing very differently, I think one of the reasons that I am a good ski designer um, is, is that I'm pretty good at translating mechanical engineering data into how a ski feels. And I think that's why Eric and I work well together, is, is he's got probably a better perception for feel, especially for what he wants, than I do. And I'm pretty good at translating the very detailed, fantastic notes that Eric has on what he wants into what a ski should be from a construction, from a stand or a footprint and, and a flex profile standpoint. Um, you know, a lot of the skis that I've developed with Eric, I haven't been on the ski until we're almost at the finished version, hmm. where. Um, it's we'll just send prototypes to Eric and Eric, you know, the way the way it's always worked with him is is I'll send him some pictures of the skis getting prototyped and we'll have hours and hours on the phone and emails before anything gets prototyped. But he calls me as he opens up the box. You know, like he won't open up the box of skis until he's on the phone with me or if he can't get in touch with me, he might maybe he cheats. But my my <laughs> understanding is that basically like he wants me or Josh or Jay on the phone as he's opening the box up for the first time, and it's like he wants to give us his initial reactions. Yeah. And then you know he'll mount him up, he'll take a run, and he'll always call me on the lift after the first run and be like, "Okay, here are my first reactions to how this ski skis. I'm going to ski it for five days. You'll hear from me in five days, and I'll hear from you in five days." And um, and that's just sort of how he operates, and it's it's an absolute blast you know there there are a lot of other great athletes who are great to work with um you know like i just started working with tom this last year and we've got a new tom wallish for him yeah um and and tom's as close to eric as anybody i've ever worked with where tom is really good at saying this is what i want you know this is this is how i think we're going to get there and giving me feedback on flex profiles and, and all the rest of it and and honestly i was pretty taken aback when I started working with Tom because, um, you know, I've worked with some other great athletes on both the K2 and line side. Some have been better than others, but nobody's come close to Pollard, um, and, and yep. Tom's not <coughs> on that door. Huh. So wow. I'm, I'm psyched to see. That's high praise. Yeah. 
It is. Yeah. I mean, it's deserved. So, um, you know, but like Tom ski, that's not my ski at all. Yeah. You know, and Tom, <laughs> yeah, Tom I loves know. That. Yeah. Tom, Tom loves that ski. Josh <laughs> loves that ski. I ski on that ski and I, I feel the things that I, that, that they really like about the ski. Um, but they're honestly, they're things that I don't like about the ski. And, and there's a reason that I'm not skiing on Tom's ski, which is not to say it's not a fantastic ski, but Tom's looking for a very different feel and a very different performance out of a ski than an XD1 racer. Yep. Um, and I think one of the reasons, getting back, sort of going in a circle here, but one of the reasons that Tom's ski came out the way it did and Eric's skis have come out the way they, they have is, is that, um, you know, we've, as a development team, the athlete and me have been very good at communicating what's going to work and what's not going to work and, and figuring out solutions. Hmm. So, yeah. At this point, Jed and I break for a minute to go find some more beverages. You'll hear us opening them here in a minute. And the conversation turns to Line Ski's founder, Jay Leventhal, and moves on from there. So here it is, Jed Yeiser talking about Jay Lev. Yeah, he's yeah. fucking unbelievable. Yeah. Like, I, I miss working with Jay every, which is not to say, like, work now sucks now that <laughs> Jay is not around. Yeah. But um, he's, he's a pretty phenomenal. I think a lot of the reason Line is successful is because he just really wasn't willing to take no for an answer. Yep. And I don't know if we're still recording. This may yeah, go nuts, man. Um, this this may or may not be a story that you want to include in in the blog, but um, you know, one of the things that Jay sort of swore off when he started Jay Skis was he's never going to SIA again. Hmm. He just hated trade yep. shows. He was going to sell direct and. Um, you know, the world was going to come to him. And I think he he knew that that was something that he might need to, to change. And he was at SIA last year. So, um, you know, we were all thrilled to see him and spent some time talking to him. And I sort of walked him through um, the new line. And he, he basically saw the new Sick Day 102 and the Sick Day 102 Tourist. And he was just like, bah, that's not a line. You know, and... <laughs> and I, I didn't really have a, a chance then to be like, dude, what do you what do you mean? Because these are skis that I'm I'm really really happy with, and that people are really happy with, and this is, you know, I think a continuation of the sick day line that we started when you were at line, you know. So this isn't a huge departure from where we were two years ago when we were developing the sick day line that that really you called for and you were calling the shots on the sick day line. So like, wh- what do you mean mm-hmm. this isn't a line? Um, and I, I bumped into him again at, at power awards and um, just kind of said like, Hey man, like I, I just need to know what you meant and like whether or not you're the founder of line or not, let's take that out of the equation. I've worked with you for three years. I really value your opinion. And you looking at a ski and two seconds later saying this isn't a line, 
I, I like I, insulting is not the right word, but it it really put me on my back foot and sort of said like, okay, what what the fuck's going on? Because you see things that I don't see. You've hmm. got way more brand awareness and brand hmm. perception knowledge than I will ever know. And so like, what do you mean that this isn't a line? And um, you know, Jay had 16 people that were trying to talk to him at the time, and it, it meant a lot to me that he basically was like, all right, find me in five minutes, hmm. you know, and let's let's talk about this. And a lot of, of his issues with that Sick Day 1 and 2 and Sick Day Tourist was that it had more of a flat tail. It wasn't quite as twin-tipped. And he was like, listen, I spent 15 years with wine trying to get people to accept twin-tips and hmm. trying to accept skis without tail protectors and, and trying to accept things that were really new and different and radical and like the market's sort of caught up with that at this point like twin tips are well accepted and and this ski to me it's got a flatter tail it's got a tail protector it looks a lot more run of the mill it looks like everybody else's and mm. and that's not what what line did for a while and you know I I would disagree with him on you know especially in a ski performance standpoint where I think that sick day one or two is exactly where I, we want it to be it families really well from performance and if you take the tail out of the equation it families with the rest of the sick days and there are very specific reasons that the tail is designed the way it's designed keeping a skin to clip on the sick day 110 or the sick day 95 is a chore and skin clips stay right where they need to on that sick day 102 tail but it's it's yeah it's one of those things where you talk to somebody like Jay and he'll say something that that seems you know initially a little bit flippant and then you're like okay what what the fuck do you mean yeah. and and he can just list all of these <clears throat> really concrete well thought out reasons on on sort of what he's saying and so that's yeah. interesting right because that gets back to our earlier question about brand, brand. consistency yeah. and I'm and and you actually were kind of in the you were kind of defending kind of brand consistency and I was the one talking about ski specific. Yeah. And and so on on that, for what it's worth, yeah. I agree with you yeah. that no, I don't care about the line history. Right now in this moment, line is trying to build a touring ski. Yeah. So do that. Build the best touring ski or the most intentional specific touring ski that you or line wants to make right and and so that that's just again interesting and and so i it's it's easy to see though um why the head of a brand someone involved in the marketing how are and we going to move this to customers yeah so long yep yeah. yep that's all very interesting stuff but but um but i do think ultimately once you decide we're going down the road and we're making a touring specific ski i i'm Personally, I want to err on the side of like we have to move toward what makes sense for a touring specific ski um, And then the company needs to do a good one one that makes the company proud Yeah, not necessarily one that reflects the company's kind of twin tip Heritage and yeah. yet I, I mean I it totally makes sense where Jay's coming from but absolutely and you know You haven't been on that ski yet, and I'm I'm very excited to get your feedback when you do um, You know, I, I think it's a the way we've always looked at the Taurus is it's a touring ski done the line way, hmm. where it's it's got a tighter side cut radius than a lot of touring skis do. It's 
it's not the lightest touring ski out there, mm-hmm. but it's a very playful, capable, fun, underlined fun touring ski. Um, you know, and I've taken it up three, four volcanoes in the Cascades, and it's my my touring ski of choice, and I'm I'm thrilled with where it is, and it's surprised me a lot. I think I was telling you that I took it to Idaho last winter. Um, and was skiing in very deep, very light snow. I mean, not the snow we get here in the Cascades. And I'm skiing a 179, which is short for, for me. It's a good touring length, but it's short. And in that snow, I was really worried about how it would do mm-hmm. in in deep, light snow and was, was pretty blown away. I don't think it's unique to the tourist that it did really well in snow like that. Um, it might be. I think a lot of design elements of that ski helped it in the light snow. But to me, it was an eye-opener as far as what a short, narrow ski can do in snow that's that deep and that's light. And it sort of gets back to conversations we've had, you know, not not in this interview, but like, at what point is wide too wide, yep. you know? And, and where are you compromising um, ski ability for all-out float and how much float is too much float? Yep. Um, but, yeah. Mm. <laughs> That's a whole. We'll, we're gonna. That's, that's another can of Yeah, we'll but. have that the width conversation on a different a different day. Yeah. Certainly, there are some people. Uh, you know, the fact that that K two and Line are manufacturing skis in China. You know, um, the only time this is ever talked about is kind of in a negative tone right, right. This is, I, yeah. I can't think of a single comment in the history of anyone commenting where it's yeah. like yay k2 and or line makes their skis in china i'm curious because it is something that i know it's an issue you encounter for sure yeah. um so these skis are being built overseas um what the hell um and i'm not saying that there's no issue there but what i am saying is i think the loudest people talking about this are showing absolutely zero nuance. Well, in, and I think they're the, the, the louder people talk about it, the poorer their information is, or the more ill-informed they are. But continue. Well, so I mean, just as one example, you know, made in China versus yeah. made in America. Again, I I comment a lot of this based on like what performs well. Right. So the idea that, well, just by virtue of the fact that something is made in, whether it's America or China, it's either good or bad, shows such a lack of sophistication in terms of the fact that, like, guess what? There's a number of factories in America, and there's a number of different people building skis in America. Right. Same with China. There's a number of different factories. and then, right. so. This blanket generalization, I mean, honestly, that stuff starts to sound bigoted to me mm-hmm. um, in a way that I'm not okay with at all. And I'm curious what, you know, I know you end up spending a lot of time overseas. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I, I'm, I think people, there's a lot of people, I think, wondering about this. And, you know, K2 and Line are manufacturing overseas. What does this mean? Should we be mad about this? Should we be cool with this? Um, I don't know. I mean, what what's I mean, your experience about this? What's your what do you think? I mean, I, I do definitely get a lot of feedback on on you know have you guys ever thought about manufacturing skis in the U.S. and isn't manufacturing in the U.S. better? 
And I guess to pick up your point, if, if a customer chooses to support a certain brand or buy a product because it's made in the U.S., that's not an invalid totally. choice. Uh, absolutely. But, and, and, and it's one that, that, that I really can't control. Um, but the reason they're choosing that product is not because it performs well or well, – it, the reason they're choosing that product over another product is because of the, re, the origin of manufacturing, not yep. the product itself. Um, and if, if you look at, at manufacturing in China in particular, you know, you can manufacture things poorly in China if you want to. You can get things made at a sweatshop and you can sort of abuse labor in China. Or you can do what we're doing, which is make it right. <laughs> you know, our factory happens to be in China. If we bought, brought our factory over here to the U.S., it would still be a state-of-the-art facility. You know, um, and and we have oversight at China that we wouldn't have here in the U.S. We have more people that are looking at product and really trying to to make sure that we are putting our best foot forward from a quality standpoint. And you talk to anybody in this building who saw production move from Vashon to China, and they will say unequivocally that our our quality went up when we moved from China or when we moved from Vashon to China. And, and that's not to say that we haven't had issues, but those issues don't stem from it being a factory in China. Those issues stem from communication between us and the factory and, and the factory making some decisions that we might not like them to or us making decisions that the factory might not like us to. It's not a Chinese factory issue, mm -hmm. it's a it's a manufacturing yes. issue, and they're the same issues that we'd have if the factory was here in the U.S. Yep. And, um, you know, I, I do spend a lot of time in China to ensure quality and to make sure people are trained the way they need to be trained. And you look at the people that I work with over in China who are Chinese engineers or Chinese managers and supervisors, and they all care an unbelievable amount about what's going on. You know, I walk into the molding room, and the molding room supervisor comes and says, hey, we need to talk about this. Like, this part's not fitting the way it's supposed to, and it's really f fucking our quality up. And and it's, he cares, you know? And we'll, we go skiing with those guys. Granted, they're not all skiers, but if you go to a factory in Austria or Slovenia or Spain, most of the people actually molding the skis and doing the manufacturing aren't skiers either. Um, and to be good at building something you don't need to be passionate about using it. And I, I guess I'm getting a little bit sidetracked. But um, the fact of the matter is, is that people at our factory in China care. We treat our people well. Um, and the issues we have are the same issues that Vocal is having in Straubing, that Solomon and, and Atomic are having in Altamarkt. Like, they are issues with manufacturing skis. Um, and... And, you know, I haven't been to other ski factories in China, so I can't, I can't speak for them. Knowing what I do, I believe that they're trying to do things well. You know, I've been to factories in China when we're looking at sourcing a small part that, that are not factories that I'm comfortable with, and we don't use those factories for our tip protectors or for injecting plates because we're not comfortable with the conditions at that factory. And we hold ourselves to the same standard for our Chinese facility that we would hold ourselves to at our U.S. facility. I don't know if that answers your question at all, but it's, I mean, yeah, I guess to, to, to reiterate or repeat myself, it's not, it's not a Chinese factory problem. 
it's a factory problem. Manufacturing, yeah. yeah. And yeah, I think that that, <clears throat> the sort of punchline on my take on this is, I, I absolutely accept and understand and appreciate someone who's like, I love to buy products that are made in my country. So if that's a Norwegian, Great. if that's a Norwegian you know? person yeah. saying that, if that's a Spaniard saying that, if that's somebody in the U.S. or a Canadian saying that, yeah. totally get it. But the I and that's that's great. Yeah. But but I think a lot of the rhetoric and the the vitriol we see around this issue, it's 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 worse than that. I think it's seedier than that. And and that's something that I think. Um, you yeah. Know, I mean, I, and again, I, I mean, I, I spend my time. You know, obviously. You know, got other folks at blister you know yeah. evaluating bikes and climbing equipment and stuff which is i personally yeah, spend my time on skis and what i tend to say to people is i have seen great skis made in the u.s and i've seen shitty skis made in the u.s yeah and i've seen that each company is capable of messing something up that is what we call a manufacturing problem yeah that's here that's american made yeah. I've seen it in skis that are made in Spain, in skis that are made in China. So it just doesn't resonate with me. Yeah. This idea that like country X equals good manufacturing and country country. Yeah. Country, what a generalization. Country Y equals bad. That as somebody who spends a ton of time up across a broad spectrum of stuff being manufactured in different zones around the world, that doesn't resonate at all. It doesn't yeah, nor jive with my experience. It, you yeah. know, um, and yeah, it's it's difficult for me when people ask me that question. It's difficult for me to impress that upon people. Like people just say, "You make skis in China. You make skis in a sweatshop." And and while that might be ridiculous and just a comical departure from the truth, people assume th that it is the truth because they've heard about. Yeah. sweatshops in China you know there there are factories in Germany that make shitty product there are factories in China that make unbelievable product there are factories in the US that make great product and shitty product I mean yeah. yeah as we're saying it's it's a factory issue it's not a a country issue we have a great deal of pride in our product and the process that goes into making our product and I think none of us would stand behind the product the way we do if it was made in a way that we're not proud of um, and you know, I, I, I can speak for me personally, like one of the reasons I am so proud of the skis I've designed is because I'm proud of the way they were made and how they were made and the people that made them. Um, and it's really nice to be able to say that. And I'm not saying that because they're made in China. If they were made in the U.S., I'd say the same thing. So... Let's move a different direction. Um, you like bicycles. I, I'm, I, I like bicycles a lot. Yeah. yeah. What kind of bicycles are you most into? Um, God, I hate to use the E word, but... Um, you like electric bikes? I'm not even going to respond to that. Um, you like electric bikes. I'm just here to say, for the record, that Jed Geyser... <laughs> I'm really glad this massive, is going to get... I'm about to get angry. Um, ...is a massive fan of e-bikes oh because he's too lazy to friggin' pedal. Oh, my blood pressure's spiking. <clears throat> um, no, I mean, I, I think if you had to use a word to describe the bikes that I like, they're enduro bikes. Oh, not electric? Not electric. <laughs> God, I would sooner... I, a buddy of mine was talking about getting an electric bike um, 
for, a for, former for, buddy? For, no, I mean, he's still a good friend. Um, I just haven't talked to him in a few months uh, after he talked about e-bikes. But, um, I mean, the reasons that he cited for getting an e-bike, and he wasn't talking about getting an e-bike mountain bike, because if, well, I wouldn't be friends with him. <laughs> Um, wow. I mean, that's 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 a little hyperbolic. I, I, I dabble in hyperbole. But, um, I mean, he works, he lives up in northern Seattle where I, I live, and he works down in REI in, in Kent, and he bike commutes all the time, and he basically said, like, you know what, I'd bike commute all the time if I had an electric bike, and, like, there are times that I just really don't feel like riding 60 miles a day. Yeah. And... For a commuting standpoint, an e-bike makes a lot of sense. Um, but I, I, we're getting way off topic here. For me, I mean, e-biking on mountain bike trails, you're going to see more and more of them. People are going to use them more and more often. But, you know, I'm going to be an old curmudgeon grandpa about it. To me, it really bastardizes a lot of the experience. Um, you know, I like... In, in, in the way that one of the reasons I like being in the backcountry is I like being in places that I power myself into and I like I like knowing that I've gotten somewhere under my own power um, and that I'm not on a snowmobile and I dislike snowmobiles in the backcountry for the same reason that being said I may buy a snowmobile this year to access places but but as far as skiing or biking I believe there's a lot to be said or earning your turns and and to me for me mountain biking is a lot like backcountry skiing in that there's sort of an, an element of purity to the experience that comes from the work you put into it and and e-biking ruins that to some extent and and also there are a lot of trails around here that you need to work your ass off mm -hmm. to get to I mean not trails that I'd be comfortable talking about on tape but, you know, there are trails that you need to just fucking put your head down and grind for, you know, eight miles and, and pick up 4,000 vertical feet. And it's, it's a bitch. And they're fantastic trails. And if I saw somebody on an e-bike on them, <laughs> I would lose my shit. Um, I mean, I, it's not going to happen because very few people know about the trails and, and they're trails that the extra bike weight of an e-bike are not going to help you out on but the people that cut those trails worked their ass off doing it and you don't know about those trails unless the people that cut them took you hmm. on them and to to i guess to just jet up the hill on an e-bike and start increasing traffic on those trails would really bother me hmm. but i i'm i'm willing to admit that i'm a snob and Okay, but you so were talking Enduro. about bikes, and you got totally, totally. Distracted. So enduro, you're, yeah. you're well, so while you're a huge fan of electric bikes, huge that's what I've bikes. taken from this. You're yeah. a bigger fan even of enduro bikes, and I hate to call. I mean, because at this point, everything's an enduro. Bike. Yeah, like it's the the marketing behind enduro has just gotten out of hand. I I really like bikes that I can that that pedal efficiently, but that are built to go downhill. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and I ride an, an SB66C, it's an old 26-inch bike, um, is one of one of my mountain bikes. Um, I also ride an old uh, Niner MCR9 hardtail, 
though that may get replaced with a more sort of downhill oriented hardtail, um, whether it's a Hanzo, Kona Hanzo, or probably a Canfield Brothers EPO. Um, I rode Tom Collier's uh, Yelly Screamy in, in Utah mm. not so long ago, which was an unbelievably fun bike. Huh. Um, but yeah, I mean, those are those are the bikes, the mountain bikes for me. I also spent some time on a cross bike and um, have a road bike that I haven't ridden in two years. But, <laughs> um, nice. Yeah, it's, I mean, for me, biking is really about the descent, you know, where I, I don't often go seek out really technical, burly climbs, which is not to say I don't enjoy them, but it's it's about the descent. Okay. Who knows, in 15 years, I might be like the 45-year-old dude that is super psyched like, on his own Thank God for you. And like, yeah, I can get up this hill, but it's just, it's cheating, you know? And It's I, cheating. It's like performance enhancing. You're basically taking steroids. Well, I mean, I guess like the thing, the ba- I, I think the slight comparison is not a bad, I mean, they're a little bit different, but there have been times that like I've spent three hours getting up to the top of like a ridge. Yeah. Or a line I really want to ski, and then like I just hear like the and you get guys that just rifle up there and and yeah like I'm psyched they're they're out and they're enjoying the outdoors but it's a very different experience and frankly like the noise pollution bothers me. I'm definitely an old man in a lot of respects, (laughs) Um, you know. So, <coughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's just, it's, I guess it's not the way that I choose to experience the things that I love doing, and there's a part of me that feels like, of course, the way I do it is the right way, mm-hmm. and that people that do it a different way, or in some sense, comp- e-bikes don't really compromise my experience. They will if they start getting a hell of a lot of traffic on the trails yeah. I like, and, and fucking those trails up. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there's a part of me that's basically like, either you respect this or you don't, and you're yeah. cheating, so you yeah. don't. <laughs> but, yeah. Everybody's going to be doing it on the bike side. I really don't think so. Like You, you got, don't? No. You think, you, you're, if you had to bet $10,000 in 10 years, you think 10 years from Define now. Define everybody. Scott specialized Trek giant. Oh, from a no, every, all of the brands will be producing e-bikes. Um, I mean, I think this gets a little bit like into our lightweight skis discussion. Oh God. Um, See, lightweight skis, the e-bikes of skis. Hmm. People are going to do it. People are looking for it. Like that, that market exists. It, proving that I am more against e-bikes than you because I like heavy skis. <laughs> other way around. What? Um, I, I guess I'm just looking at it like a purity of experience. Lighter skis are more of a more... No, I'm going to back up. Not, not purity of experience. That the market for bikes that you're pedaling are always going to exist. A market for heavy skis is always going to exist. This is absolutely false, right? You realize this. The metal vocal katana is dead. The there will vocal... always be a market 
for heavy skis. There will always be a and market. And no, there will be a market, me and like 50 other people, and nobody making those. Heavy skis are going away. I mean, I can't, really, I can't really argue with you. Heavy you, skis you are going away. You can't argue with me. No. I know. Um, but, but that market is not going away. It's just getting smaller. But the market, so, so, meaning the customer, the customer base who wants that ski is the, getting smaller. The market for skis like that is going more and more towards the hardcore, super passionate skiers, and, and the bulk of the skis that are being offered in the market is going towards the need of the market. But yeah, I mean, it's the same thing with e-bikes. Like, I, I think in the next five years, you're going to see more and more e-bikes on trails you're always going to have people like me that say, fuck, <coughs> fuck that noise, yeah. I'm pedaling my bike. Yeah. And because, like, I, I love mountain, I love the sensation of mountain biking. I also like getting exercise. Yeah. I like getting done with a bike ride and feeling totally fucking exhausted. Yeah. You know? Though, of course, of course, the e-bike advocates would say, you're still you getting further. You yep. go further, you can go further, farther, higher, whatever. And I think that's where it's gonna, it, we're gonna see if there's what kind of bat, like how many people end up agreeing. You go further, higher, faster, longer, whatever. Yeah. And then get to enjoy like a radical downhill versus those who are like, that is not this sport. I'm, I'm not gonna sit here and say there's no appeal to e biking. I see the appeal, I see why they're selling, I see why it's a growing market. That is not how I choose to experience mountain biking. Um, you know, and guys like Nico Villas, who's like the mountain biker of the last 15 years, who basically, I think he's got like eight world championships to his name, um, in downhill and sort of stopped, he started racing enduro recently, but like he's come out as an e-bike advocate. Huh. Granted, the Has company he, like, he rides for. Has he like written about this, like in defense of e-bikes? Yeah. Huh. Um. And granted, the company that he rides for, um, LaPierre, uh, is, was also uh, one of the first companies to jump on the yeah. e-bike train, so <clears throat> it's, it's tough to kind of tell yeah. how much is Nico and how much is, is LaPierre. But, I mean, his defense is basically like, I can go out and like I can session the trail and like really work on my descent technique and keep my body fresh. And I can go further, and like if I want to go out on an epic alpine ride, I can go cover 60 kilometers in a day, no problem. I could cover 60 kilometers in a day on my regular bike, and that would be a huge, huge, huge day. Yeah. Um, okay, so, yeah. so back to the question. Yeah. You got you have $10,000 of your own money. Yeah. Are, let's say... Okay, first, five years from now, e-bikes are now a bigger thing, or that it's been a flash in the pan in... in it's in not going to be a flash in the pan. It'll be... Okay, so so that's your answer for five years. Ten years, these things ha are going strong. The demand for them has increased. They've become more accepted. Yep. That's where you're putting your ten grand. On them being more accepted? More accepted, more companies doing them, more people riding them effectively more mainstream um these aren't these aren't a that's, flash that's, in the that's, pan that's, that that's where my money's at but i don't think you're going to see it take over the market and i don't see like it's not going to be the, the i'm going to 
totally contradict myself here now. It's not going to be the light skis. I think regular bikes are still going to be the meat of the market, and e-bikes will be a large segment of the fringes of the market. A lot of people that ride mountain bikes and that ride bikes in general do it, I believe, and maybe this is me being naive, do it for the purity of the experience and the simplicity. You know, a lot of my friends that build bikes up make very intentional decisions about the parts they put on their bikes because they want it to be simple. You know, they want one ring up front, yep. none of this 11-speed stuff. Like, I'll just put a 10-speed cassette on the back of my bike. I want alloy rims because they're not going to crack and break, even though I've had very good experience with carbon rims. Um, you know, make making conservative, robust decisions for the bike for simplicity and purity. And I don't think that part of the market's going to go away. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's maybe a better way of looking at it is like AT and backcountry is growing. All right, and I guess it's sort of the flip side where it's the establishment is using power, using lifts to get up the hill, um, as mm -hmm. opposed whereas the establishment is using, right? using your own power to get up the hill. Backcountry is going to grow for sure, and I think it's growing for good reason. Uh -huh. Backcountry will never dominate the market, I don't believe. Mm -hmm. I don't believe e-bikes will ever dominate the market, but I believe they are going to grow. Hmm. Books, Books, movies, or music. If you could only, for the rest of your life, have one of those three mediums, which are you keeping and which are you giving up? Uh, movies is the easy one to rule out. You're not into movies. You don't. You don't I mean, understand most is, of them. I, I, yeah, they're just way over my head. Um, which is not to say I don't enjoy movies. But if you look at at things I really need and and crave and and enjoy and sort of I guess augment my experience in life, it's it's certainly books and certainly music and and I would probably say music over books mm -hmm. but but that's a tough decision to make and it's uh, I mean it's it's honestly because I can do a lot of things while I'm listening to music mm -hmm. and and I enjoy doing things more often when I'm listening to music yep. and and when I'm reading a book it's sort of the world shuts off yep. and and it's about the book um but that would be a really tough choice. Are you listening to anything good right now? No. Uh, Are you just living in the past musically? I do live in the past quite a bit. Um, I've spent, I mean, I grew up listening to a lot of sort of grunge and punk and... Weird. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was that was sort of my, in, until I got to college, that was, well, even beyond college. Um, I think the last album that, that I... I sort of really got into in a big, big way was um, the Silver Sun Pickups' second album, Carnivus. Hmm. Um, and, you know, I've, there's been a lot of music that I've discovered since then. Um, but that, I mean, if we're talking about full albums, which I know you didn't bring up, but I sort of, I like in it. my head, sort of... Full albums is a good full, one. Full albums, that was the, the one, and that's got to be more than five, six years ago now. Um, Red City Radio's new album, called Red City Radio comes pretty close 
is that what you're listening to right like what's on just repeat right now is is there I, th there's a lot of red city radio there's um some off with their face uh been listening to a lot of odessa a lot of lower spectrum a lot of lower dens um yeah hmm. but like when carnivus came out that's all i listened to for like four months straight <laughs> um where it's yeah it's that's sort of how how i do books and movies as well it's like if i find something i really really like i'll read it multiple times not necessarily in a row but you know i've read catch 22 probably 15 times like is that the book you've read most do you think no i hate to admit this the book that i've read most is the fifth harry potter book oh my god wait a Huge minute harry you've read potter that book. more than 15 times by because um, you just said it's got to be pretty close i don't i i actually don't have numbers on catch 22 rereads and harry potter rereads but basically the sense <laughs> this that is amazing I've reread it at least once a year, always over the holidays. And I'll, I mean, it, a lot of my rereads get to be pretty loose, where especially on that book, it's like, yeah, this part's boring. And okay. The next book, yes. And it's also like, on that book, I've got, this is going to sound weird, but I've got such a connection with home and being in Vermont and like on my couch in front of the fireplace that like when I go home for the holidays, I, you know, rest of the family will go to bed I'll sit in front of the fire and I read that book and that's just sort of like one of those things I, I, I do that brings me back home and it's so. specifically the fifth book specifically the fifth book huh you, confession I've yep. never read any of them you know what there was a time where I I I'd say like oh god that's absurd <clears throat> the best books ever um and and they're not you know they're enjoyable I really like the story but I think the reason I, I keep on rereading that book or will pick it up is not because it's so yeah. well written yeah. or that it's so revelatory, but that it just brings me back to a place that I like. Well, since you've already dismissed movies yeah. so quickly, mm -hmm. I do think we should note that one of the things I learned today yeah. is where the Mordecai the new line Mordecai got its name, Indeed. which I was pretty excited about this. It's the hawk in the Royal Tenenbaums. The hawk in the Royal Tenenbaums. Yeah. Um, and is that because, so is that because Eric is? Eric's a big Wes Anderson fan. Awesome. Um, and, and in the movie spectrum, Wes Anderson is, is pretty high on my list. Yep. Um, Your favorite Wes Anderson movie. Or rank, oh, rank the top three. Uh, the Life Aquatic is mm. easily easily number one whoa okay um number two it would probably two and three are almost a tie but i'll, I'll give number two to the grand Prix de best hotel wow okay and and three would be the royal town and Bobs. wow um how about you uh, knowing that's a different okay <laughs> that's a different interview <clears throat> yeah okay. i mean this this actually should be like its own entire um i've been rushmore for me that was a great yeah. <clears throat> Rushmore for me is is pretty. Um, I got my reasons. Plus, you get Bill Murray in it. So which like, is well, but Bill Murray is in the Life Aquatic, and for that Life matter, Aquatic, in the Grand Life, Budapest Hotel. Life Aquatic's not making my top three. I'm, I'm, really? I'm just saying, we've got Rushmore. Grand Budapest Hotel is amazing, but I've yeah. I've only watched it once so okay. far, and so we need to see. But I think 
Rushmore, then then I don't know whether it's Grand Budapest Hotel or the Royal Tenenbaums, but okay. but that's where I'm living. And and I, I should probably go back I need to go back to Life Aquatic, just you know, because but Yeah. And it's I mean, I think one of the reasons I like the Life Aquatic so much is is that for my group of friends in college that became sort of a cult cult movie for us. Yep. Um, and by the way, for the record the the moment Jag Shark was uh, named after the Jaguar, Jaguar Shark. Though. So just for the record, Wes, Wes Anderson, Anderson apparently is having a massive <laughs> a massive influence on the ski industry. I had no idea. Yeah, that's, that's a awesome. fact. Um, so you know, congrats to you, Wes Anderson, and and here's to hoping you give us more names um, of yeah. things um, going down the road. Trying to think, could it could a ski be named a boy with apple? Um, but <laughs> I'm now almost certain <laughs> that that that's gonna happen. So it'll, yeah. it'll be Eric's next pro model. It'll be the boy with apple. Boy with apple. Um, yeah, or anybody out there. That name is up for grabs at the moment. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool. Good to talk. Awesome. Um, we should go eat food. Let's go eat food. Okay. Thanks, Jed. Absolutely. Thank you, Jed. Two and a half hours later. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Jed Yeiser for the conversation, to our audio engineer, Justin Bob, and to Alaska Airlines for sponsoring this episode. Be sure to go to alaskaair.com forward slash ski to check out all of their current deals. Till next time, head over to blisterreview.com to see what we're up to there, and we'll catch you next Thursday on the Blister Podcast. took out an entire six pack we didn't wait (laughs) yeah it just kind of happened i don't know